to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. It's always good to be here with my very good friend of over 30 years, Troy Waller. How are you, Troy? I'm very good. Thank you, Brian. Again, I am, I don't know, titillated by your radio voice. That deep resonance goes right through to my testicles, I think. That's a beautiful thing. And, um, and and you've never said that to me. It's yeah, I know. You got stuck then. I saw you just like, oh, did he just say testicles? I don't think we've said testicles on the podcast before. I'm also a very visual person. So if someone ah, says okay. something. Well, hold on, hold on. I, <laughs> no, no, you don't need to. I've, I've, I can seriously, I, I've just seen your testicles in my mind's eye. Like oh, it's, nice. Yeah, no, it's good. And you need to shave. <laughs> uh, funny enough, I don't. That's how I know you didn't really see it. But okay, moving on. That's why I just said you need to shave. Anyway. This week, we're, we've got a special guest, and it is a special guest that I reckon many, many of our listeners, if not all of our listeners, will be very familiar with. And we've actually had a few people say to us, you've got to get this person on. So we've got this person on. So it is a pleasure today to have April a joy. And April, for those who don't know, is a viral TikToker. And that sounds a little bit dirty, but it's not. April has gone viral. She's a YouTuber, podcaster, and April describes herself as recovering conservative, humorously detoxing religion, and that's something that she certainly does. Welcome, April, to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. I was also a teenage fundamentalist, so yay. That's our first question. So you're already ahead of the pack. We usually do say, were you a teenage fundamentalist? But you were, and obviously that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today. Yes, I was a very cringy teenage fundamentalist. In fact, yesterday, was it yesterday? A couple days ago, because I just moved to Kentucky in uh, America, because I know you're going to make fun of my accent, but I found an old journal from when I was in 11th grade in high school. It's basically my random ramblings of what I thought about random current events at the time as a conservative teenage fundamentalist. And I titled this journal, When Life Gives You Lemons, Throw Them at a Liberal. I did see that. And just before you came into this call, (laughs) I was just about to say that to Troy, that I saw your post about that. And I did cringe. I went, wow, you were full on. Like you were really into it. I was so into it. And I thought I knew everything too. Like I I thought I I was the smartest person in the world at 16 years old, just knew it in the depths of my bones. That version of Christianity that you came from, and, and let's dig into that in a minute, right? Like really what did being a teenage fundamentalist look like for you? But that version was really full of grace and love and it was just it was just really kind. I mean, I could really see Jesus in that version of Christianity. Oh, I mean, he he's clearly in there, you know. I'm sure they read the Sermon on the Mount right before they stormed the Capitol. That was what gave them that fuel, you know. Blessed are the meek and break in windows. It just goes hand in hand. Yeah, praise the Lord. <laughs> definitely dripping with humility and that that was one thing about that scene and we often reflect on this ourselves that it did give you a security because you had so much certainty how couldn't you have certainty when you believed that the bible was every word in it had come from the mouth of god so how could you doubt that 
because there you go. There's your foundation for life. Oh, I know. It's it, it was a very easy way of living and it just simplified everything. Everything was either good or bad and black and white and you could demonize anything you didn't agree with and that made it really easy to just dismiss people that made you uncomfortable. Yeah, very, very convenient. So April, let's talk about your teenage fundamentalism. Let's talk about your backstory. Now, I did some cyber stalking of you and listened to a couple of podcasts and interviews and things because I'm very, I'm very audio based. No, you creep. Sounds like a creep. creep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, I only show my testicles to men. It's okay. So were you Pentecostal and were you Assemblies of God like us? I was Pentecostal. So I was Assemblies of God adjacent because my grandfather was an Assemblies of God pastor, but was tired of like the the politics of the boards and the like growing up we had a saying for all have sinned and fallen short of the assemblies of god so we kind of we were i mean we were basically in doctrine the same as the assemblies of god but we were non-denominational pentecostals who branched off out of the assemblies but i went to two assemblies of god colleges yeah i think i heard you say that because so did we we went to assemblies of god bible colleges although brian dropped out because he was a shit christian but i graduated do they have Assemblies of God in Australia? Mm, that's where we came from. Well, yeah. Ah. Pay attention. <laughs> that's why I'm asking. I didn't know. Yeah, you- yeah, totally. Um, yes, we do have Assemblies of God, although we kind of don't. So good question, because in the late 90s, early 2000s, they rebranded themselves as, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in Australia, churches changed their names all the time. And the denomination changed the name and became the Australian Christian Churches. And fun fact, that was led by someone you might have heard of, a man by the name of Brian Houston, who went on to start Hillsong. I, I do know that name. Yep. Great guy. So we don't have we don't have Assemblies of God anymore. We have the Australian Christian Churches, but all the old school, old timers, we still call it the AOG. Ah. Yeah. We, we were in a an AOG in Australia that was probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, AOG in Australia. So it was steeped in tradition. It started not long after the Azusa Street Revival, you know, Troy. Like yeah, yeah, called? an American evangelist. Gosh, I can't remember his name. Kelso something. He came out and, well, he didn't come out. He came to Australia and he, he <laughs> yeah, he came to Australia and started the whole Assemblies of God thing, you know. And, and I think there were already pockets, though, because the – the fire had caught and the fire had spread already. Yeah. Did you have fire tunnels? Oh, I am familiar with the fire tunnel, but I never myself were involved in a fire tunnel. But I've certainly heard first town accounts and that's yeah, that's that's next level shit. I'm assuming because <laughs> you've asked us that you were involved in fire tunnels. Yes, but so my church, I don't remember actually doing a fire tunnel at my church, but I remember having them at like a youth camp I went to. And so my dad was a Pentecostal evangelist growing up. My grandfather pastored this large church in Dallas. My dad was a traveling evangelist. So we would travel with my family. And so my dad would preach at all these different churches. And so I would go to all these different children's churches. And like the one biggest fire tunnel I remember, I was 10 and I was in kids church. And they like had done this, you know, they kind of put their hands up and you kind of run through and like God's supposed to 
I don't know, knock you out or just make you feel kind of like we'd call it getting drunk in the spirit. Like, why do you need alcohol when you can get drunk on Jesus? And you just feel funny. But I remember as leading up to the fire tunnel, she this she was a woman's children's pastor. So, you know, progressive brought up all the kids. Granted, she was over kids. So maybe that doesn't count. And literally went down the line and laid hands on every kid and every kid fell out. And I was I was a little bit of a rebel growing up. Like I fully believed everything, but I, if someone assumed I was going to do something, I didn't want to do it just because like, I didn't, I didn't like being predictable. So I'd made up my mind that I was not going to fall when this lady put her hands on me. And I don't know what happened, but she came up to me and she just went fire and like shoved my head. And next thing I know, I'm on my back and I was so pissed. I was like, how did I get down here? I still don't really know. I think I just like Everyone, like everyone was falling out. And it was just, it was an odd, odd thing. But I just remember she went fire and it was just, it was super creepy. Maybe she really had the gift. I mean, maybe that's what it was. Maybe it wasn't anything untoward. She was just full of the Holy Spirit. But I will say that in terms of fire tunnels, I think nowadays you can get a cream for that. So just pointing that out. <laughs> uh, just it's so wrong, Troy, but so right. <laughs> no, you're right. They can. It's just one pill and it's gone. But wow. I, I do. Think... I think it's two pills, by the way. Oh, yeah, sorry. Two yeah, pills. it's it's a there's a follow up. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Chlamydia, everyone's favorite fire tunnel. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, god. We we are going to be fishing for sponsors now with chlamydia cream or pills or something like that. By the sound of it, it's that sort of shit though that. I often forget things like the fire tunnel because I I certainly remember that happening, but I never I remember people talking about their experience. I remember them talking about you know the power of these fire tunnels, and even back then I was like, oh, really? This this is just a little bit of weird shit. That I'm not sure I can get into. And as as Troy just said, I was a bit of a shit Christian. I mean, I tried. I went to Bible college. I was on that trajectory to become a minister, but. I just some things I I just couldn't swallow. I I just couldn't get on board, and I was the same as you. I never once fell over or got slain in the spirit, as they say, not once. And I think some of it for me was a little bit of rebellion as well. I was like, oh, "Fuck you! I'm not going to fall over." But some of it was I just never felt that, and I never actually had that experience. Which quite often I used to think, "Oh." Does God actually give a shit about me? Because I've got all these people around me that are falling over, and that does that mean that they've got more power of God coming onto them? I, I don't know. Because I oh, know that's exactly what it meant. Yeah, that's totally what it meant, Brian. That's why I had it all the time, and you had nothing. Yeah, Troy did have it all the time. Troy, Troy was a serial faller. <laughs> yeah. Well, did oh, anyone like think you had a demon because you weren't falling out, or shame you for it? I never had anyone try and cast a demon out of me, I've, I've got to say, but I was certainly involved. That wouldn't have gone well either, Brian. No. You would not have taken to that. I would not have. I would have manifest. So, and <laughs> the easel totally bub. Have. You haven't seen a demon yet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But I was certainly involved in casting demons out of other people. So mm. I, I definitely thought that some of those everyday ailments or the struggles that people might experience were definitely demon led but it's it's i just think i had a disconnect there because i thought i oh, well, i could never have one myself but i also thought logically well how could if if 
Jesus and Holy Spirit lives in me. How could I have a demon? So I used to have all of those questions as well, and I used to get very confused by it. And I think in the end, my logic won over, and that's why I'm no longer part of all that stuff. But, yeah, it's it's interesting, the different experience. But we're not here to talk about my experiences. We're here to talk about yours. So <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Poor April's going, oh, wow, this is an interesting podcast. They do all the talking. Well, no, I did ask. I asked. I'm... I'm a curious person. You did, and thank you for having me on your podcast, April. It's been a great (laughs) interview. I've I've really enjoyed it. But let's go back to your teenage diary because when I did see that (laughs) about throwing the lemons at the the liberals, I just thought, what else was in that diary? So have you got the diary? Look at that. April is showing us the diary. Please, please. I was thinking about doing a, a TikTok series about it because I mean some of it I will never read it's that bad but I hold on there was one part in here first of all the first page goes on how disappointed I am in my fellow teenagers for being against the war in Iraq so you know wow. <laughs> you you were there with George W and his I dad. loved Georgie I really did he was from Texas I thought he was just the I miss him though. I mean, after the whole Trump thing, it's like, oh, he really wasn't so bad after all. I mean, Nixon wasn't so bad after all, after Trump. Oh my gosh. Seriously, Trump makes George W. Bush look like Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's a rant that I did on homosexuality, which could get really gross. Like, I would cancel me <laughs> for reading this from like, Granted, I was in 11th grade, so 16-year-old me wrote – also, okay, so, so so for some backstory, my dad at one point went on this quest to get MTV taken off the airwaves because – and I don't know if he saw it or if he heard someone say it, but he was under this impression that MTV was having all these shows – about gay people and saying like how do you know if you're not gay unless you try it and it was like infiltrating all the teenagers heads of like oh well we got to try it how do we know if we're gay unless we try it and and there is some truth to that by the way is there how do you know unless you try it well i think most people know generally speaking what they're attracted to oh oh, okay was that an overshare whoops (laughs) Hey, if that's what if that's how you made your discovery, congratulations. Okay, so here is here is this. What and what is this fetish that you don't know if you're gay or not until you quote try it? See, I'm going off on that right here. That's the popular thing today. Just try it. If you refuse and oppose it as I do, you're completely intolerant of people's rights. I respect people's rights. I can disagree with them, and I wholeheartedly agree or disagree with homosexuality. It's a sin, I wrote in all caps. It's not a lifestyle. Hold on. And then here we go. Then I went on to say, where were all the homosexuals before the 1800s? Has anyone ever thought to consider that? They just all appeared. They were in the 1700s. (laughs) Well, according to 16-year-old me, there were no homosexuals before the 1800s. So who are you going to believe, really? I can't believe that you didn't go on to become a historian. That, uh, <laughs> I mean, we yeah, have so much truth telling. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Anyway, wow, that's that's 
but again, that comes back to it's that certainty, isn't it? And it's what Troy often refers to as historylessness. What we can't see before us never happened, or we don't know the past. We don't go back because we don't need to. That's right. The book of Acts finishes and our church begins. So everything else in between doesn't matter. And that's when the gay demons come out. So I think it was about 1803. That's right. I've just yeah, consulted that was it. when it that was when it started. There was a big gap there where nothing gay, <laughs> nothing gay, very straight, straightened era. Surely you knew there was a lot of like Roman and Greek gays, right? That was a thing back in the Plato times or no, whatever. Not according no? to sixteen-year-old me. That just wasn't. Yeah, the historians are wrong. <laughs> and not not post Constantine when everyone converted to Christianity, um, there was no more gay. Yep, just yep. after the 1800s. That yep, was... he, he converted away the gays. Hey, so let's talk about your dabbling with Christian nationalism. Well, more than dabbling, right? A full embrace. So this is one mm-hmm. of the things that you sort of, I don't want to say rail against, but this is one of the things you call out is this whole Christian mm-hmm. nationalism thing. So how did that look for you as a young person? And then what I'd really like to know is how did it all come apart for you? Okay, so... I would not have called myself a Christian nationalist when I was a flaming Christian nationalist because, one, I think it's a relatively newer term, but in my mind, I was just a good Christian. And to me, that meant being a good Christian was you were evangelical, you voted Republican, and that was pretty much it. And obviously, I also thought you had to be Pentecostal, like Pentecostal was the best way to be a Christian. But I believed that America was like, God's chosen nation to kind of keep the world in order and that God had supernaturally blessed our troops in every war we ever fought and that that's kind of how our nation was created. It was to worship Jesus. Like the fact that England and the British were also Christian didn't even cross my mind. And when I was growing up, I I was born in the late 80s, but I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s. There was this big like purity culture push And everything outside of that, like all of this, what we would call moral depravity and like all these teenagers having sex before marriage and homosexuality being shoved down your throats, all of this was putting our country in danger of God no longer blessing America. And so we had a fight to take it back on the righteous trail in order to keep God's favor on us. And there was like some end time stuff in the mix too. And depending on the day, it could go either way. Like we needed to keep America afloat to like hold off the end times or we needed to try to start the end times. I don't know, because we also really wanted Jesus to come back. So there was like, And as a teenager, as a teenager, yearning for the rapture was a very complicated feeling because I remember I would pray and beg God to, if the Lord tarry, did y'all use that, that phrase? Like, like Jesus, please tarry, wait to come back until my wedding night so I can have sex first because I didn't want to get sucked up into the sky naked, a virgin, because as far as I was concerned, theologically, I didn't think you could have sex up in heaven like was you know april it's a very american thing because i do hear american people say this all the time especially people reflecting saying i really used to pray that i wouldn't get raptured before i'd had sex it was like you've got to be able to have sex before 
Jesus comes back. And I don't know, I mean, maybe it was because, Brian, you and I, our Christianity, we sort of just had sex and didn't worry. <laughs> but it seems that, yeah, it's a very American thing. Is that how you guys held sex to be so special, so amazing that you just can't miss out? Well, I think it's, 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 there's a couple things. It's because the church, at least the churches I grew up in, like evangelical culture puts so much emphasis on sex. Like they're sex obsessed, but they're also very repressive. So especially as a teenager, you're having all these hormones suddenly come to the surface, which you automatically think are sinful and like proof that you're just this terrible human being who need who killed Jesus pretty much. Oh, sidebar. My very first date I ever went on, I was 16 years old because I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16, um, was to see the passion of the Christ. So literally I'm having lustful thoughts while watching Jesus getting crucified and like reprimanding myself being like, these thoughts put you there. God, forgive me. It was a buzzkill, quite frankly. Also, it's slightly weird fetish. <laughs> Ew. Um, yes, that, yeah, that too. I, no, I love how we're saying shit and we are getting April LaJoy, who's like the most out there in terms of talking about sex. She's just going, uh, 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 I love this, Brian. This is great. That one got me. I can't lie. I don't even remember what I was saying now. I got flustered. You were saying how you were getting turned on at the Passion of the Christ. No, oh, no, but because of my date, not because of Jesus. <laughs> Right, look, you don't have to explain it to us. And and only because, you know, we're not going to judge. It's fine, April. Honest, in, in all honesty, it is totally fine. Everyone has got their thing. To be fair, I did tell guys that I was dating Jesus at certain points to get them off of me. But that was also because they were like, God told me you're the one. I'm like, mm, did he though? No, because I'm hanging with his son. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, so uh, sex obsessed. Church is sex obsessed is what I was going to say. And purity culture, if you grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, like the way that they emphasized sex to be the worst thing you could ever do before you're married, but then like the greatest thing if you wait. I feel like that, that was, those were half the sermons I heard as a young person in the evangelical church. So it was just you couldn't help but think about it. And like the idea that I would be sucked up and raptured before I got to have what apparently was the greatest thing in the world was was just a hard thing to, to have. And like I would pray like, God, please don't come back until I can have sex on my wedding night because I couldn't just have sex. It had to be on my wedding night. But then I'd feel guilty for putting my fleshly desires over God's plan. And so I would have then immediately asked for forgiveness for, you know, being lusty for my future spouse that I didn't know who they were yet. That's what we often refer to as head fuckery on the podcast. Yes. It is general head fuckery. But look, it's, it's not unusual to, and it's certainly something not unfamiliar to us in the Australian context also, that purity culture was absolutely something that was ever present and an obsession totally. with sex We're yeah. in the assemblies of God where we came from. And we joke about the fact that, you know, we, we were having sex. We weren't. We were totally born-again virgins, as they, they called it, because we weren't raised in this. We we both sort of came in at a later stage. But so, April, how did it all fall apart? How did you decide, hey, this doesn't make sense anymore and deconstruct, yeah. to, to use the word that all the cool kids use? Yeah. So I would say it was like a decade 
long deconstructing journey and I didn't know it was really happening while it was happening. But the first really big thing that had happened, so refresher, we were Pentecostal. We believed that, you know, as long as you have enough faith and ask God for something that he would give it to you. He would honor that faith. And if he wasn't answering your prayer, you just needed more faith or you needed to like prove yourself more. It was always on you, never on God. So when in 2011, I was 23. My dad, um, who was a great Pentecost, like he had prayed healing for so many people and we had believed like all these miracles had happened. Um, he got, he actually was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and we just knew God was going to heal him even though the doctor said he had like six months or less, like it was very terminal, like it had spread everywhere. We just knew God was going to heal him. But four months later, he passed. So that like immediately shot, I would say I deconstructed Pentecostalism, like charismatic beliefs first, because I was like, well, I could not have had more faith. Like I knew, like I just knew and that God didn't answer it. So I definitely started doubting like healing and theology and that stuff. And also like a lot of Christians after my dad had died were just like really gross to me and my family. Like they would, a couple of different ministers went to my mom and said that God didn't heal my dad because we had some kind of unresolved sin in our family or because my dad was living out of God's will because he had started a church and didn't stay in evangelism and like just like stupid stuff that was trying to blame us instead of God. And and also, April, and I, I don't say this in a mocking way, basically saying God killed your father for not right. doing enough or not being right enough. I mean, that's just horrible. Yeah, it was, it kind of really opened my eyes to just a like I realized at least, especially in charismatic circles, like you're not allowed to be sad. And I, and I was so sad, like my whole life, my world had completely been flipped upside down and had stopped because like my dad was this huge presence in our life and he was now gone. And I didn't feel like I had a church to really lean on because one, they were either dismissive of why my dad passed or honestly, this one I think annoyed me the most is they were like, well, God did answer your prayer and God gave him the ultimate healing in heaven, which like that pissed me off. It's like, God knows that is not what I was asking for. But it was just kind of like, literally like a week after my dad died, I was hanging out with my friend and her parents and they were like, oh, so your mom's going to get remarried, right? And like, y'all are doing great. And it was just... Like the positivity that people were expecting from me, like immediately to be like, oh, God works all things together for good. His ways are above our ways. Like find the good in it. Like be happy. Like he's in heaven. Nothing to worry about. Like just really pissed me off. <laughs> and and I just, I kind of went a little introspective for a while because I just, it didn't make sense. And I didn't know why it didn't make sense. And that was like, really like the first crack in like the shelf breaking. And that's the best example I've seen of toxic positivity. I mean, we hear a lot about that in evangelicalism and this toxic positivity, but there it is just laid out, you know, someone's died and you're not allowed to grieve. You're not allowed to mourn. You need to be, you need to be okay with it. Yeah. And I, and I was like, I did, like I would make these posts about my dad and I would always put this positive spin at the end of it too, because I felt like I had to, but it felt, I don't know. It was just, it was just a really hard awakening time for me. 
And I felt like I was going through what they call like the dark night of the soul. Like I felt like I wasn't hearing from God anymore. Like he was just gone in the midst of all of that. And yeah, it was it was a very hard time. And that lasted for several years, obviously, because you don't just get over someone dying. So how long ago was that? That was in 2011. So what is it now? It would have been, it'll be 12 years this September. So yeah. And then the next big thing that happened was in 2015. I Well, I had got married to my spouse and then my, my brother, so I have two brothers, they're twins. And one of them had flown out to visit us in Virginia where we were living at the time and came out to me that he was gay. And clearly you read my journal (laughs) from earlier. Like I had up until that point, I thought like people just chose to be gay for funsies, you know? And so that immediately was like, well, clearly there's no way that my brother who grew up in the same very homophobic household as I would choose to be gay. And that was another big crack that sent me on this long journey of figuring out, okay, so I don't think it's a choice. I bet people are born this way. And now I've got to reconcile that with what I've been taught my entire life. Just for your brother's safety, I hope that there was no lemons handy that you could throw in. (laughs) Yeah, no, I pulled out my lemon. I threw it at him. (laughs) Yeah, well, the sad part too is he at the time, because he had grown up in the same household. And so he just believed that God didn't love him because he he bawled when he told me. I was the first person he had told. He was 26 at the time. And he said like he had spent countless nights crying himself to sleep, begging God to make him straight. And God just didn't. So he just assumed like, well, God just doesn't love me and I'm going to hell. Like he was so terrified of going to hell that he told me and he, and he even believed that like the only way forward for him to even have a chance of going to heaven was to be celibate and alone for the rest of his life, which he's since now like not. But at the time, like even he was still very much indoctrinated and everything. It, it's incredible that the power that has over people. I've had two friends when I was still a Christian who came out to me and they were Christians as well. And they they couldn't reconcile it. And the self-hatred was just so evident that the only thing they could do was run from it because it wouldn't, the thing that they had counted on to embrace them, no longer embraced them. It actually it was repulsed by them, particularly when they they came out and they were a a bit more open with those close to them. Now, both of these people have still never come out more broadly. Both of them have never come out to their family, so it's still a a secret. But one of them has discovered the joys of Grindr several years ago, so is living the, the dream for them, but still they battle this. They can't reconcile it. They can never go back and restore with Christianity because it can no longer be a part of them. So they wrestle with this constant sin that they're in, even though they don't even recognise it as sin anymore. It's just, it, it is so fucked up. And the other thing, Brian, is if they're deep in the closet, that makes it very difficult for them to live in a loving gay relationship because that's almost impossible to hide, especially if your family are quite close to you. So it's it just sets up so many barriers, so many boundaries. It's just it's just wrong. Yeah. Well, and and if you're living a secret, and that's the only way that you can 
set that side of you free, that just adds shame and just isolates you even more inside of that. Hi, I'm Tracy. And I'm Sharon. And we are Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Huh, we've got less than 60 seconds. Sharon, go. Truthfully, Troy and Brian, you're the ones who deserve the credit or the blame for all of this. First, they got you, Tracy, to claim that Christian music megastar Keith Green was a cult leader. (laughs) Then they got you, Sharon, to talk about your pure virgin marriage personally arranged by Keith Green. (laughs) And now we are totally out of the closet, launching our own podcast, telling the world about the crazy Christian commune, Last Days Ministries. And most importantly, our decades-long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we found love and peace and joy on the other side. Wherever you get your podcasts, Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website, IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com or find our link tree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. So, you know, grade 11, April hates gays. So your brother has come to you in 2015 and come out how did you respond to that? Like, what did it do for you at that very time? What was your response? But since, what's it done to you? So there's actually a little backstory. So about six months prior to that, I had actually had a dream that my that he came out to me. And it was a little bit of a premonition because he actually ended up coming out to me sitting in the exact same chair at my kitchen in the exact same way. And so having that in my head ahead of time and like, I mean, he was 26. He had never had a girlfriend. And actually the guy that I went on the date with to uh, Passion of the Christ when I was 16, he actually said, I think your brother's gay. And I was like, like went like I would have cussed him out, but I didn't cuss. Uh, But I was like, no, he's not. So anyway, so like I had it had been in the back of my mind. But anytime I would go there, I'd just like, no, not Andrew. I mean, he would say home, he would join in on our homophobic rants too. So anyway, all that to say is as he came that weekend, I like had made up my mind. I want to be a safe place for him to come out. You know, I'll deal with the theology later. I don't like that doesn't matter, but like this is my brother. And so, and and I was already kind of softening on homosexuality because I had made friends that were gay and realized they didn't have demons and I didn't know how to reconcile with that, but it just was not, I already knew it was not as black and white as I had previously thought, but I still believed it was a sin and that, that you really didn't have to be it, that like God would deliver you and blah, 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 blah. Anyway. So when my brother came to visit, I was intentional about just saying things like, I think I said, like, I believe you could be a Christian and, you know, quote, struggle with homosexuality. Like, And he was like, yeah, I think you could too. So I I was like trying to like plant little seeds that like I wouldn't be the worst person to tell if he wanted to. And to be fair, like I mentioned I was a rebel. I had confessed things to him before. Like I, you know, I tried weed once and I told him about it. And so, so like he, he was like that person for me. So, but yeah, so when he told me he was bawling, 
and like me and my brothers, he's only a year and a half younger than me. They're, they're twins. And we didn't have a lot of really close friends growing up because we moved a lot and we were constantly traveling. So like we were really, really close. And so to see someone I loved so much, like breaking in front of me, like broke me. And that my, my initial reaction was I just went over and hugged him and cried with him. You know, I just, you know, I love you. This doesn't change anything. I do think, I don't remember saying this, but he told me that he remembers me saying, well, we know what the Bible says, which, ew, cringe. But it was like very loving, you know, and he told me he was planning to be celibate. And I was like, good, because I don't know how to handle if you weren't at this point. Yeah, we, we talked a lot about it. He flew back to Texas because that's where my family is from. And he was living with my mom and my other brother at the time. My other brother was like spitting image of my dad went to seminary, like wanted to be a preacher, like still much more homophobic than even I was at the time. So he was really nervous to tell him and tell my mom. But I was like, I went into like big sister, like protective mode. And I was like, you're going to call me. I'm going to be on the speakerphone. I'm going to say a prayer before you tell them. And like, it was such a passive aggressive prayer too. I was like, Jesus, I just pray right now that you soften hearts, that only people will respond with love and that, like, it was just, it was so- Can I just like, say to our listeners, she closed her eyes then. Like, <laughs> she was praying. It was, we were there in the moment. It was amazing. And I just want to say your prayer didn't work. My heart isn't soft. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny how, like, all that just comes back. So I didn't even realize I did that. It was just second nature, you know, to just go into prayer like, Heavenly Father. Um, That's right. You have to say Father God instead of um. And Father God, we just want to say, Father God, that it's just wonderful, Father God, that you are here with us, Father God. And lots of just. Just yeah, soften just, hearts right now. Just, Let lo only yeah. love, Father God. Just come out, Father God, just right now in this moment, Jesus. And yeah. Father God, we just come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Listener, she's got her eyes closed again. I did it. I know. I don't. I can't do it without closing my eyes. Weird. I'll have to go to therapy about that, figure out what that's about. When you closed your eyes, were you imagining Passion of the Christ and things like that? Yeah, now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so then he came out to my mom. She responded very well and loving. And then my brother also responded very well. We all cried. And now me, my mom, and then obviously my gay brother, we're all pretty affirming. My other brother pretty much is. He just won't admit it because there's, that's a whole other story. It doesn't matter. At the same time as this, on the an, another queer issue was happening that wasn't with gay but with gender. My spouse, we is non-binary. We know this now. At the time, they were having gender dysphoria, which we didn't know what that was. But like, they had told me when we were dating, I've literally had laid hands on them to cast the demon out of them. To be fair, I got consent. They asked me to. Well, that makes it okay. <laughs> <laughs> they thought they had a demon too. So like I wasn't telling them. They were like, I think I have a demon and you're Pentecostal because they were Baptists. So they don't deal with demons. I knew how oh, to handle yeah. a demon. I was like, you're lucky you're dating a Pentecostal. I I knew what to do with demons. Oh, and being a Baptist, he would have had a demon. So I mean. <laughs> of course, like by default. Yeah. Was he yeah. Baptocostal though? Did he speak in tongues or did you have to take him to that place as well? No, no. They never spoke in tongues. They they also asked me to lay hands on them to get them to speak in tongues, which actually was kind of a red not a red flag. It would it was like a slight concern because I didn't want to be unequally yoked. You know, I didn't want to be the more spiritual one of the relationship because I spoke in tongues and they didn't. But I just let it go. I didn't make a big deal about it because they were clearly dealing with other things. 
at the moment, which was it was not the main priority. So they they've sort of come out to you in some sort of way. In in what way though? It was that hey, I think I'm gay, or I think I'm non-binary, or what? What was that conversation? So they were so in the closet that they didn't even know what how to describe what they felt. So they the way they had come out to me initially, we had only been dating one month, but I had already confessed like every bad thing that I had ever done to Be- Beecher's, their name, on our very first date because I was just like, this is me, <laughs> take it or leave it. Um, because I was, I had a scarlet letter. I was not a virgin, which is another story. But I like literally felt like I had to confess this. I'd slept with one guy who had dated for two years. And I felt like I had to do this like sob story to every per- new Christian guy that I had dated. Because you had to let them know you were chewed up gum, right? You had exactly. to Exactly. I had to let front. them know yeah. they were that I was damaged goods, um, which is so messed up looking back. But like literally, I would like cry telling telling them like, I'm so sorry, like I've messed up and oh. Hey, for what it's worth, my Pentecostal ex-wife, she actually called me while we we're married, called me used goods. Yeah, it was oh. awesome. Mm. Wow. And, and so you know, I, I use the word X, so you see how that all turned out anyway. Yeah. Well, I said it about myself, so <laughs> really had high esteem there. So a one month into us dating, Beecher looks at me. We were like, had we were like making out or whatever. And they had never done like anything sexual at all. I had a little. And so like we had crossed, like we had barely crossed a physical line and I guess that just like like they had hid their queerness inside purity culture and so anyway there was like a lot unraveling in this moment and so Beecher just starts crying and I'm like what is happening why are you crying right now and Beecher's like when I was in fifth grade I put on some of my sister's clothes because my mom had accidentally put it in my room and I tried it on and I liked it and that was it that was all that they said and I was like okay great. Well, who cares? It was one time you were in fifth grade, like move on. And I mean, just like, really? You're, you're like, they had had in this head that if they told a soul that they would just be like totally dismissed. But what, and I was naive because I had, I should have known by like the emotional outbursts that this was causing, that there was more to this than just one, something they did in fifth grade. But apparently they were so freaked out in fifth grade and they had just like right after that, Um, their mom was watching Dr. Phil and it was about a trans woman who had transitioned and like had this like terrible experience and was like mutilated and like was never happy again. I don't know. I I didn't watch it, but apparently very much scarred them. And so they just completely shut it down because they didn't like, in case that was who they were, didn't touch it at all for fifth grade to they were 22 at the, at this point. So anyway, that started us on this long journey. We started dating. We get engaged. We get married. We both went to counseling. I try to lay, like, we like went into full on spiritual warfare to get rid of this like gender confusion demon, whatever it was. We didn't know what it was really. And we thought it was gone. And then very quickly into our marriage, suddenly, like we're both pretty tall. Like they're like six one, I'm six foot. So like they could fit into my clothes and they had like suddenly a whole closet of women's clothes at their disposal. That was like a super big, you know, temptation would have been what we called it at the time. And so there'd be times I'd come home from work and Beecher would like cry and confess like I, you know, I I wore one of your dresses today and I'm never going to do it again. And like, so anyway, 
that was like years long going on. And I didn't like we went through this is like a whole long story. Like this is this could be a, like a whole book because it was it was really because this is happening while, while I was working for CBN, like the 700 Club and Beecher was high up over um, production at a large church in Virginia, like did all the videos for them. We had no one to talk to about this because anytime like the only time pretty much the only like sexual sin that they talked about in marriage was the husband watching porn and like that was it and like that was not our problem but no like no one could relate to us there was no one we could talk to if Beecher like brought it up to anyone they were like oh it's like a sexual addiction and just that was weird it doesn't even make sense I don't even I don't know how to explain it but that was happening simultaneously with my brother coming out and so that was kind of the reason why I was just like life is a lot bigger than I had thought. And it's a lot more complicated than I had thought. This is a real struggle. You're also married. What does that mean for you as a couple? What does it mean for your marriage? How do you navigate that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say the the nice, the good thing in all of this of being raised very strict purity culture evangelical was like divorce was never an option, you know, like it was like, we're, no, we're staying together. We got, we're going to figure out how to make this work. So we really loved each other. Like I love, like we were in love. And so I was just like, we're going to figure this out. I struggled for a long time, you know, like why does my husband have to be the weird one that puts on a dress? You know, like, why can't like at the time I'd be like, why can't you just watch porn? Like a normal, like a normal Christian's husband. Like I would much rather deal with a porn addiction because that's at least normal. Like everyone has a porn addiction. Why can't you just storm the Capitol? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like at least people would get it. But yeah, no, I mean, it was a, we had some dark times. I will say like early on in our marriage, I was kind of living in denial of what it was and was just kind of like, just keep it away from me. I kind of had the, it was like a little don't ask, don't tell type of situation. Like do what you need to do to keep this under wraps, but I don't really want to be involved kind of was my, so I thought everything was going a lot better than it was for years. Beecher was having a really hard time, got to a really dark place shortly after our first daughter was born. Wasn't sure they wanted to live anymore kind of dark. And so that was kind of a, a huge wake up call for me to just recognize like this is this is real. Like this is not something I should be playing around with. Or and so I remember like we had this one moment, this was a few years ago. I think it was during the pandemic. So I feel like during the pandemic is when you you actually have to like face your shit, you know, because like everything else was gone. So we just really went head on to dealing with this in like 2020. But I remember like after Beach was like, I don't know if I want if if it's worth living anymore and like bawling and I like I grabbed their hand and I I walked them to our closet and I just like put one of my dresses on them and I said Beecher I would rather you be alive in a dress than dead in men's clothes and it was just kind of this moment of like yeah I would rather have them alive in a dress obviously obviously and who cares it's just clothing it's just it's how they present it's like I wear guys I wear guys sweatpants like almost every day like and I was like this is so stupid that like these gender roles and like what society has put on us so then they like they found a counselor that actually specialized in gender identity because before they were going to like Christian counselors who 
like Beecher was telling them, like, I think I have gender dysphoria and they'd have to like look it up. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't like the best for dealing with it, but they actually found someone that was trained in gender identities and all that stuff and, and really spent like a solid year like digging into like figuring out who they were what made them happy, like where they felt peace. And like God was a huge part of all this too. Like we would pray about it. And one day Beecher just felt a peace about feeling in between. Like they didn't necessarily feel like a man or a woman. They just felt kind of in between and non-binary. So they told me, it's like, okay, we, we know what this is. And so then we took another year to kind of tell like well, they like took a, a you know another six months to a year to tell people that were close to us and family, um, and then they came out publicly. I think it was like a year and a half ago. Like I don't think it hasn't been two years. It was not this past spring, but the spring before. So that was kind of it. But there was like always this. The conservative in me like died so hard because I realized so much of my problem with it, which part of it probably had to do with being a pastor's kid too, was like what people would think. Like I was really much more concerned about, especially because pretty much our entire circles up really until like the last couple years has been evangelical churches, like our small group, like all of our friends were super evangelical because we both went to really evangelical Christian colleges. So every single person that was in our life was conservative evangelical. And for what it's worth, April, listening to your story, I was thinking even people that hadn't been raised in evangelicalism, people that hadn't been raised in Christianity, this would be an issue for any couple. Hmm. You know, I mean, sure, there are going to be people that are going to be accepting of it really quickly, but they're a minority just in terms of the way that our culture lends itself. So I, I don't know, I'm listening to you here and I'm thinking, for you, it's not just about church. It's about marriage. It's about life. It's about, you know, that, that concern about what is everyone going to think. That's not just a church thing for sure. So it must have been really, oh, look, that sounds really trite to say, but I can see how hard it would have been for you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really hard. And I mean, I, I'm very supportive and cool with it now, but it did, I don't want to do myself a disservice. Like it was a struggle because I, you know, I thought you, I mean, I usually read my thing about uh, homosexuality. I probably would have written the same tangent about gender and trans people. They just weren't a big deal in the two thousands, you know, like I definitely, it took a long time because, and I was worried about attraction. Like, could I be attracted to them presenting more feminine and which the cool thing, I guess, in all of this, um, well, one, Beecher gets to live their as their authentic self and like our marriage is so much better now. Like, but there were like all these other like complicated things in the mix too. Like with purity culture, I don't know if this is TMI, but I, I have talked about it on my channel before, but um, I like could not have an orgasm until I was like in like well into my thirties because I like I had this impression that female pleasure was sinful or like it wasn't or like God was punishing me because I had sex before marriage. And so it didn't like my pleasure just, I was just never going to, to get that. So then like to have that thrown in the mix and then Beecher would just take any type like me rejecting them sexually or me not seeming like I was enjoying it sexually as a rejection of who they were like 
gender wise, which put pressure on me to then like, I got to figure Anyway, it was just like really complicated, like every like purity culture and being conservative and then just living in America or, you know, or just like gender norms in general, like you said, was just, it was, it was very complicated and hard. But, oh, what I was going to say is I, I started going to therapy to deal with like my purity culture things. But then in the process, like I started at really asking myself, like, what am I attracted to? Who am I attracted to? Am I attracted to women? Am I da da da? Um, and like realized, like, oh, I'm definitely bi. And not because Beecher is non binary, but like I was just, I had always kind of been attracted to women, but I just thought that was what every straight girl felt about her friends sometimes, um, which apparently is not. <laughs> so, but I had just repressed that too. Yeah, it was just, it was, 2020 was a wild year. <laughs> yeah. And and how does that work in terms of not so long ago, you've got married in what is very much a context of man marries woman, goes on for the rest of their life in their gender norms and lives ha- happily ever after. How does it work in your marriage now? And if this is too much to dig into, feel free to say piss off. But how how does it work in your marriage now? I mean, you're saying you're bi, beach is non-binary. How does that work when you're looking through the traditional norms, which most of society does? Yeah. So our marriage, other than being happier, (laughs) isn't that much different. I mean, gender norms, I, I would say like early on in our marriage, we both felt very we put pressure on ourselves to fit the husband and the wife role. Like uh, the first year of our marriage, I was working full time while they finished school. And even though like I would say I'm more, was more of a feminist and believed like women could be preachers and, and, and that women can work outside the home. Like it still bothered me that I was the breadwinner for that first year. And so, but then also Beecher was feeling really insecure about their gender identity. So they like let me do most of the cooking or like I tried to do most of the cooking and the cleaning because I needed to be, you know, domestic as like the good traditional wife. Um, But I'm not a good cook and I hate cooking. And so I think after like the fifth oversalted beans or like the dry chicken or like I would just like make a casserole with no vegetables and be just like, where are the vegetables? Like, why do we need vegetables? Like it's just cheese and chicken. Beecher's like, I'm going to cook. And Beecher actually really likes cooking and is a great cook. But they felt like they couldn't at least admit that because they're supposed to be the men and the husband and I was supposed to be the woman and the wife. And, you know, but now we've just accepted Beecher's the cook. I do the dishes. And, you know, I really like playing video games. Beecher really doesn't. Beecher really loves cuddling and like doing the more romantic things. I could take it or leave it. So like we were already kind of like didn't line up with societal gender norms anyway, but we were fighting them like crazy because we felt like that's what we were supposed to do. And now it's just like, no, I don't like cooking. There's nothing wrong with that. Beecher loves to cook. Beecher's a great cook. I'm going to let them do the cooking because, but really we look like if you just looked at our family, we look like a pretty normal, like, I don't like the word normal, but it's just like, there's nothing necessarily weird about us. We have two kids that we adore. Um, we do a lot, we have a lot of fun as a family. Like our girls do still call them dad or daddy because 
one, they did, they came out after they were alive. So they were already calling them daddy. And that was something that we had talked about. And, you know, Beecher said like, they, like there's certain terms that they feel a little dysphoria with, like, um, like son, or like if someone comes to like, Hey man, or like buddy or whatever. But like for our girls, like daddy is just the name that they, they know them as there's nothing gendered with it coming from them. So we've, we've stuck with that. But yeah, other than that, I feel like our marriage is like any other marriage. April, I've got another question for you. Yeah. How do you guys, well, let's, let's talk about you. How do you define yourself now? What labels do you wear? And do you still consider yourself a Christian? And if so, what does your faith look like now? Where, where, where is your faith in, in all this, in this journey over the last 10, 15 years? So I, I actually do still consider myself a Christian to the woes of all the agnostics and atheists that follow me. So, but I will say, if you were to ask any evangelical today, if they think I'm a Christian, they would definitely tell you no. <laughs> I, they would consider me a hardcore heretic. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I just, I feel like my faith is much more spiritual now I have I still have this real love and appreciation for the teachings of Jesus. I think there's a lot of really good things in there and I feel now like when when I was a teenage fundamentalist, so much of my identity was in my belief and having the right beliefs like this is the right thing to believe and it, and my faith was very belief focused, which is kind of weird because I I feel like faith like if you know everything, what's what's the point of having faith? Like you don't have a need for faith if you if you know everything. Um, where now I look at my faith much more action focused and like how I live my life. And as long as I am loving my neighbor and really trying to make this world a better place for everybody, you know, like thinking of other people's needs, not just my rights and you know what the government can do for me, but looking at like you know the government really favors white men and we should really spread that out a little bit but also just just trying to be I don't know like I I just I feel like there's a really big world out there I don't have all the answers I will never tell you that I have the answers I I do believe in a god to me like I because I've just always called this like spiritual presence or the universe or whatever Jesus like that's just my my name for it but I'm not like if I'm going to believe in in a in a god that is much bigger than this world then I feel like it's very ignorant of me to say that that god isn't also communing with muslims and hindus or you know like I I I guess you could call me a little bit more of a a universalist in a sense but um yeah, so so not a real Christian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what they would say. But I still really love Jesus and like I yeah, I just I just to me like the belief part is an intangible that doesn't really matter as much. I feel like, you know, if the Jesus of the Bible is still alive in the air today, that he would care way more about how I actually loved my neighbor, not whether or not I believed the right thing. Do you ever get so fed up with it all though in terms of the way it's impacted you that you toy with the idea of walking away oh yeah <laughs> I've definitely thought about it a lot I guess there's this little piece of me I've told you I'm a rebel 
that if they're going to tell me I can't be a Christian, I'm going to say, piss off, watch me, you know? And, and it's messed up, but I gave my life to Christianity, to the church, to like, it was, I grew up in ministry. I, my worked in ministry up until just a few years ago. And it's, it really angers me. I'd say like a righteous anger to see how corrupt it all is. And I feel like, at least at this point, and I'm not going to hold myself to this forever because I like, I give myself the right to walk away if I want to. Yeah. And, and but, we grow, right? We grow. Right. Right. And we all grow. But at this point, I feel called, which is kind of a cringy word <laughs> coming for it, but I, but I just, I feel a passion to, to speak out against the abuse of evangelicalism and Christian nationalism being a Christian still, it just seems like it holds a little more weight to the people that are still in it, even though they would call me a heretic, but I can go toe to toe with them because I know them. And if I were, if I were them and I was them, <laughs> if someone was an atheist or an agnostic coming at me trying to, you know, even if they had all their facts right, which they usually do, I would immediately dismiss them as being like taken over by some whatever. But I just, I know the language, which you all know the language too, but I just be like, no, I am a Christian. Like it just shuts them up. It's just this, uh, which maybe it's the wrong reason to do it, but it's, I, it's, it is part of the reason that I still would call myself a Christian too, because it does hold more weight when you're dealing with people who are fundamentalists. And you don't need to justify that at all, right? You're on your journey. I walked away from church in 1999. I didn't come to a place of zero faith for a long time after that. And I don't say that as a trajectory, meaning that's where you're headed either, right? You, you're where you are, but no judgments, be who you are, you know, yeah. be on, be on your journey for sure. As a matter of fact, my next question for you is how did you then make the decision to make this so goddamn public? Like you're out there just making TikToks and Instagram reels and wow. Yeah. Well, again, 2020 was a wild year. Uh, I downloaded that teenage dancing app called TikTok because I was like, oh, we're stuck at home. Me and the kids and Beecher will just make funny, stupid dance videos for fun. I started dabbling in like mom videos for a while. I made like funny mom content for the first couple months. And then I made one video that was... It was to a trend at the time, but basically the message was when you're a Christian who doesn't like Trump, you get kicked out of the club. And it like shot up to like almost a million views. It was like, I think it was my most viral video at that point. And then I was like, huh, there's other people like me who think it's insane that these evangelicals love Trump because I kind of thought I was the crazy one for a while because they were gaslighting me like I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I didn't vote for Trump ever. But in 2016, I voted third party because I still couldn't bring myself to vote for a Democrat because I hadn't quite deconstructed that yet. Anyway, I voted third party and I was trying to get all the other Republicans to vote third party. I was like, seriously, you're going to vote for Trump? Like Trump, Don Donald Trump? The, the hate that I got from like family members and people that I knew from church that you would have thought I told them I was sacrificing my child to the devil with like just the vitriol that they like they came for me with. Like some of these people like had changed my diapers, like knew me really, really well. I like a, like a few different people 
to, to me and like my family too, because none of us were team Trump said like my late father would be disappointed in me. So I was, I was already getting pretty pissed off about the whole Trump thing, but I just kind of was quiet about it for a little bit because it seemed like everyone that I knew didn't see the problem with evangelicals voting for Trump. So I think it kind of became a release on TikTok initially of like, I've got to get this out of my system. And then I found like a million other people that felt the same way. And it's like, I'm not alone. There's more. And like everyone else kind of said the similar thing of like, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one. Like it's like these people are, are going crazy. Like, like, like everyone was being gaslit. And finally we realized like, it's not us. It is them. And so it just kind of lit, lit this fire. So I, that was kind of how it started. But then I also, I've always just been very outspoken and I was a very public bigot, I guess, before. So now I feel like I need to be a public unbigot to try to undo all the harm and like awful things that I did before. You know, like, I mean, I did write an original song called America Say Jesus that is very Christian nationalist. And I sang it on the Jim Baker show when I was 18. You've got some serious evangelical credibility here. What you worked for the 700 Club, you sang on Jim Baker. I mean, wow, you were deep. You were deep. I was deep, which also is another reason why I feel like I need to make it public because, like, no one can argue with me that I was in it. Like, and I did this too, ashamedly. But when you see people that leave the Christian faith, you just say, oh, well, you just were never a real Christian. You just didn't, you just never really got it. You never had a true conversion. You knew about Jesus, but you didn't know Jesus. Yes, exactly. And so I'm like, they can't say, they can't say that about me. Like, do they, they? If if they really believe that about me, I was like playing a long con game as a kid, as a teenager for for the future app TikTok that I somehow foresaw coming out to be able to come out and be like, I used to be conservative. Spoiler alert though, they do say that about you and they will continue to say that about you in spite of your credibility. Yeah. Yeah, they still do. But every once in a while it's fun. I'll just be like, oh yeah, was I not? And then I'll just play a clip of me singing on the Jim Baker show or the time I volunteered to work with Judge Roy Moore or being with a George Bush rally or Mitt Romney or the video I made campaigning for Mitt Romney or the tweet where I said, oh my gosh, in 2012, 20, 2012, 2012, I, no, 2011, I don't know. At some point, Trump spoke at Obama's correspondence dinner and I tweeted, say what you want about Trump, but he has Obama sweating right now. And I hashtagged Trump 2012. Dear God, well, you're almost like the Simpsons. You predict stuff. So amazingly. I don't know. I like Facebook memories is awful. It's just, I can't escape my past. So I'm like, you know what? If I ever get famous, like, you know, one day, no one can cancel me for things I said in my past because I'm canceling myself. I just bring it up to the front. This is what I said. This is when I said it. And I completely like disavow my teenage fundamentalist past self. It's the only thing you can do. You can just own it, embrace it and give them nowhere to go. So I think you're doing amazing work there. <laughs> but what what's next for you? I mean, this has been a roller coaster. I mean, you, you've had a few years of going viral in a good way 
And what does that look like going forward? Is that something you have foreseen? Obviously, you're a bit of an oracle, April. You've told us that (laughs) when you were a teenager, you knew TikTok was going to come out. So maybe, you know, maybe you know what's coming next. Maybe you don't. Tell us, what do you you foresee, Oracle April? October 12th of 2024, the rapture is going to happen. I'm just kidding. October 12th. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Gives us plenty of time. What? Predicting the end times? That's unheard of. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Oh, thank God. (laughs) Oh, no, we thought you were serious. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. No, but y'all are going to feel extra nervous on October 12th now, though, Just, just in case, you know, stranger things have happened. So what's next for me? I'm going to keep making my stupid videos as I can. No, I did not foresee this. This was something that kind of fell into my lap. And it's so funny to me too. But like, I'll get these, like, I get messages from lots of people and it's, they're all like, well, some of them are, are not nice, but a lot of them are really kind. And like, it's people saying like, oh my gosh, you've helped me so much. Like that they felt like they they thought they were alone and like my videos make them laugh and that they don't feel alone. But like people like pour their hearts out to me and which is really amazing and like humbling at the same time. But then I like think back and I'm like, oh, it, all I did is like I dress in drag. I pretend to be a Theo bro or like men pastors. Or I wear a ladybug on my head to be a Trump supporter. Like I make an absolute like idiot of myself. It's just, I don't know. Life is just really weird. But what I'm I'm actually currently writing a book that, you know, as long as my editor approves this next version, will hopefully be out sometime in 2024. So that's that's kind of where all my focus. Before October 12th. Before October 12th. Yes, I got to get it in before Jesus comes back. The good thing is we do have some Christians who listen to to the podcast. So Christians, before October 12, 2024, get married and have sex. <laughs> yes. Yes. Get that. Lose that V card before October 12th, 2024. You heard it here first. Do you ever want to make videos mocking the deconstruction scene though, or have you, of sort of the the progressive? Because I reckon that would be fun too. Like do the the walkaways, you know, the nuns, the duns, expand, mock us, go for it. Yeah, that feels maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'll go there one day. At, at this point, I'll, although I've I've like – flown a little too close to the sun on some things because I made a video calling out Bethel like this was a couple years ago and Calvinists hate Bethel which I hate Bethel too but I kind of hate Calvinists more than I hate Bethel but all these Calvinists were like coming on be like yeah you get them girl and like we're like team April for like a couple days and like started following me like I got a bunch of Calvinist followers because they thought they thought I was one of them and like that's one reason why I like don't want to like I don't want to make videos calling out deconstruction or like progressive stuff like at this point anyway because that's just I don't want people to think I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> but but that's how you know you're in a good place when everybody hates you, right? That's when you know you're telling the truth. That's when you know the emperor, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, we would love certainly when your book gets released to have you back on and talk about that book and we certainly look forward to a read of it. I imagine it will talk about a bit of your life story and some of the stuff we've spoken about today, but as a book can do, it can help us dive deeper into someone's experience and life and identify ourselves within those pages. So 
good on you for writing a book because I think it's such a powerful medium and you can do so much with it that you can't do in other mediums. So that's going to be amazing. Yeah, and congratulations on on getting a book deal. That's all grown up. Well done. It is all grown up. It is very, very It does feel grown up. (laughs) Hey, so, so April, how do people connect with you and your work? Let's pretend that people don't know who you are and that's just not the case for the bulk of our listeners. It's certainly not the case for us. We love your work. But for those that don't, how do people connect with you? Yeah. So um, I'm on pretty much most of the social medias um, at April Ajoy. Ajoy is my middle name. So it's just April like the month and then A-J-O-Y on TikTok, Instagram, threads now. I have to start saying threads. What is Twitter now? X? That's so stupid, but I am on there. And Facebook, all the all the places. All the places. And we do encourage people to, to have a look at all those platforms and um, April's different handles because some of them are fucking funny and we they, we, they really are. We, we love it. Laugh out loud funny, like not just LOL, like literally laugh out loud funny. And one thing I want to ask you about, April, and – Forgive me if I'm sort of jumping back in the gutter, or maybe it's not in the gutter. We're just being sex positive. Did I see you plugging vibrators I, you through sure your did. channels? Yeah, you were saying, "Hey, everybody, get one of these," and I'm like, "Wow, can I have one of those?" Yeah, I, yeah, it was a it was a deal. Like, listen, this is this is like total sidebar, but I am a vibrator believer. I didn't get my first vibrator until like three years ago, maybe changed my world. Like, remember that, that not having an orgasm problem I had mentioned, a vibrator solved it. Who would have, who would have thunk? Uh, you got a COVID dildo. It sounds like another positive COVID outcome three years ago. Yes. What do I do? I'll get myself a dildo collection. So no, yes. good on you. No, they're not dildos. I saw them. They're these flat ones. Like not that I'm sort of an officiato of one, but they're sort of these round sort of shapey, oh, circle kind of things. Gives yeah. a bit of suction on the clitoris. I believe I those no ones. Idea. I yes. wasn't going to go there, but yeah, I don't no, know how does. they work. I, I guess they I, vibrate. No, right? I know them. They, they do. They give a little bit of suction on the clitoris they and bring an orgasm. They suck and vibrate. Yeah. There's a bunch of different oh, ones. They suck actually. and vibrate. I, like I, you, Brian. Like you. <laughs> Exactly. No, no, I'm a big I'm, I'm a big believer in those as well. So I, um, and I'm, I'm familiar with them. So good on you, April. I mean, Troy, look, he's just laughing, but I mean, here we are. Being... I know. I'm, I'm I, like, you know, I'm not saying I've never been there, but it's not part of my world. I, do you know what I mean? Like, but obviously it is yours because you like a bit of suck and vibrate. Abs- right? Absolutely. And good one. And in the ad that we'll put on soon, what girl doesn't? I mean, it's where we're looking for sponsorship there as well, but no, good on you. Good on you. I think that's actually great. that's that's true. When because you know we're always looking to monetize as well. So when I saw you doing that, I thought, oh, I wonder if like sex shops and stuff would want to advertise on our pod. It would be great to have that kind of. We could do a sex toy crossover like that. Exactly. That... Hey, Brian, it's American summer. <laughs> <laughs> and guess, open up your top drawer. What's in your top drawer, Troy? Do you know what I love about vibrators? They're quick and easy, just like Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Why have five seconds when you can have five minutes with a friend in your top drawer? See, we're ready for these ads. We're ready for host red ads. You, are, yeah. you need yeah. you need to get a sex toy sponsorship. Well, can we do put a good word in for us, April. So okay, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do. That'd be great. <laughs> I, I mean, men promoting these toys. What could go wrong? what could go wrong april we do really love your work you're absolutely awesome genuine laugh out loud funny we want to thank you for coming on our show we want to thank you for doing what you do we want to thank you for being you and we're really looking forward 
to your book as well. And it's so nice to meet you. It's really cool doing what we do with the podcast because even though down here in this little corner of the world called Australia, we get to meet people like you and it's really been great to have you on our show. Well, it's been really great chatting with y'all. Thank you for having me. Thanks, April. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.